But the question about vulnerability, I think it's hand in hand with authenticity. I think a degree of vulnerability is useful. I think it makes people empathetic and I think it allows people to understand that leaders, with a capital L perhaps, are actually people who have something to share rather than someone who is standing on the stage and presenting something to you. And perhaps that's an important lesson that people might be able to learn. Hello, dear listener, and a very warm welcome to episode 108 of the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast. It's the weekly show that brings you inspiring interviews with senior leaders and genuine subject matter experts, all designed to help you be the very best leader that you can possibly be. I have a little bit of a sore throat today, folks, so excuse the croakiness, but as they say, the show must go on. So this week we have something, or should I say someone, a little different for you. After interviewing Becky Valentine for episode 97 of the show and hearing about her experiences with the Royal Shakespeare Company and massively stepping out of her comfort zone and signing up to be an actor in a Shakespeare play, I was intrigued to learn more which led me to inviting Becky Morris onto the show, who was the director for the Nottingham Group, who would go on to perform on the RSC stage. So let me talk to you about Becky Morris. She has worked in education since 2007, initially as the community arts manager and then the extended services manager for a group of schools, and now is the teaching and lead for student welfare and enrichment for the sixth form. Alongside this, she has also started up her own theatre company called The Felly Players in 2001. And now alongside teaching, she continues to provide freelance theatre support services. I absolutely loved recording this episode for you. And it was a really powerful reminder, I think, about just how much we can learn when we choose to step out of our lane. It's very easy to speak to the same people, read the same books and go to the same places, yet we can learn so much more when we step away from our own norms and we dare to venture outside of our comfort zone. Listening to Becky share her experiences from a sector that is completely alien to me just created so many light bulb moments for me and I'm sure it will do the same for you. Before we get into this episode, folks, do please head over to the online courses page of my website at ben-morton.com where you can sign up for my 10 for 10 leadership course. It's totally free. It gets consistently great reviews. It's bite-sized and it covers some of the most common leadership topics and challenges that I get asked about. So do go and check that out. It's a great resource for you. But now, and without any further delay, let's get back to this week's episode and please do enjoy my conversation with the fabulous Becky Morris. Rebecca, a very warm welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you with us today and I'm glad you've got your voice back. Yes, thank you. I'm not sure my students or my husband are particularly impressed, but um, I'm glad to have it back as well. (laughs) Well, there you go. Talking of students, that's uh, 
fabulous lead in straight away to what I wanted to ask you about, which was really, could you tell us about the the various work hats that you wear? Because from our conversation, you do a few slightly different different things, don't you? So what do you do? And what's the sort of the journey that's got you where you are today, if you don't mind? Of course, yeah. So the day job is I work in a sixth form centre and a school and I teach and I'm also the student welfare and enrichment lead for the sixth form centre. Been working in the school for 16 years. I've done various different roles throughout those 16 years, but that's where I'm currently sitting. You mentioned that was the day job. The stuff you do outside of, of work when you're not doing that is is pretty interesting as well, which is how we ended up being connected, right? That's right, yeah. So I am a theatre practitioner. I've done that for a number of years. And more recently, I've started to I guess do that for money. <laughs> it's the kind of industry that sometimes you just have to give a bit of the service in order to make connections, I think. But yeah, now I work uh, as a freelancer for Nottingham Theatre Royal. I run the community theatre group. And I also am a freelancer um, myself and I sort of offer different workshops and services to anybody who might want to book me. Cool. And for those of us who might not know, because it's not a sector I've got a great deal of experience in at all, if, if hardly any, like what does a theatre practitioner actually mean and what does one do? Gosh, that's a, a big question, I think. <laughs> I mean, the things that I do, I teach acting classes and I direct shows. I support uh, in a dramaturgical way. So an actor might want to produce a show and just need an eye on the show. And so rather than being directed, just that sense of what staging is going to look like what's going to work so I've got a number of years of experience in in that field and it's offering advice on that but yeah a lot a lot of sort of training running sessions running youth group sessions I do sometimes and I I teach some acting qualifications as well which is quite nice okay cool and then the bit I'm really excited intrigued to ask you about is sort of the connection that came via uh, my podcast episode with Becky Valentine a few episodes back and she was telling us about how she got involved as a novice actor if that's the, the the right terminology to put on part of a performance with the Royal Shakespeare Company she was talking about just about how many lessons she learned about leadership from from that experience from your side, can you just tell us some of the mechanics about how that show was put together? Because I think from a sort of freedom and autonomy perspective, it just slightly blew, blew my mind. It seemed seemed nuts to me and I couldn't quite work out how it all worked in the end. Yeah, I'm not sure I know how it worked now, to be honest with you. It was quite an undertaking. <laughs> I guess the story starts a few years ago for me, really, because and the reason I mentioned that is because there were two projects. There have been two projects that the RSC have done along these lines, and it's how I got involved in the first place. 2016 was the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death, and the Royal Shakespeare Company decided they wanted to mark that with some community engagement. So the project that I was involved in was 18 months of stuff um <laughs> I will elaborate on that I think it was a number of years more in the planning stages from the Royal Shakespeare Company but essentially they decided to use amateur theatre network throughout the country to cast the mechanicals in a Midsummer Night's Dream so six actors okay. who put on a play in the Midsummer Night's Dream and they used amateur performers and I say it was an 18 month project from start to finish for us I was one of the successful amateur actors who got involved in it I was cast as actually the lead part which was something else really 
and it, it that was a huge undertaking that was a huge set of mechanics I'm not quite sure how the RSC put it together um but it was glorious it was a glorious project it was hugely successful it was sold out it was just a really joyous festival really and I think the Shakespeare Nation so the, the other community projects that they've done were really born from that and that's how I got involved on a kind of practitioner level because that's more what I do I do act but I'm also director so this time around when they decided to do Henry Rebellion the reason that this was put on it had a different plan at first so for the last 10 years the Royal Shakespeare Company have been putting on they made an undertaking to put on every play that was in Shakespeare's first folio so 37 plays and the first folio that was published in 1623 so the anniversary is next year and then there was a plan for Henry VI part one two and three which are three three separate plays and then the first lockdown hit and everything had to be shelved so what they did was, in order to, I mean, obviously nobody knew what the, the time commitment would be and how long all of that would last, but they put Henry VI Part One on as an online performance uh, with a restricted cast. And then when things started opening up, they had this idea to put Henry VI Part Two and Three on with community actors. But I think the time was more condensed than might have been originally planned. So I found out about it in September of last year, 2021, where David from the Theatre Royal sort of said to me, this is a project that the RSC are doing and I feel like you'd be quite handy to have on board as a mentor. So because you've done this, you've been an amateur actor with the RSC, it might be really handy to have you on board for when we have some more amateur actors involved. But that was kind of all we knew at that stage. We had no idea what any of it might mean. And we had some communications and I, I just sort of went along for the ride, really. I really enjoy all that sort of thing. So I was like, yeah, sure, I'll be involved with this. It's Shakespeare and it's theatre and I'm, I'm here for it. And then the RSC juggernaut kind of rolled into town and in December last year. We had this open day of auditions and cast all of these people. And then it was around that time I was sort of informed that I would be directing them. I was like, OK, so I've moved from being a mentor to director. That's absolutely fine. That's not a problem because my experience as an actor was that we had a theatre group already. We had lots of RSC interventions. So we had weekly Zoom meetings. Well, it was Skype back then, but um, yeah. uh, video meetings <laughs> with the other actors across the country. We had RSC practitioners that would come and meet with us very regularly. We had movement coaches, voice coaches. I was off in London every weekend working with the cast. So I thought, OK, I'll just be one of that team. But no, Henry was a bit different. It was sort of, yeah, if you could just sort that out for us and we'll give you a lot of support where we can, but we haven't got very long and there are six teams doing this. So kind of get ready for April if, you, if you'd be so kind. So yeah, it was my group. It became my group. And obviously under lots of guidance and support from the RSC, they are fantastic at support, but really much more autonomy in terms of running that group. We did have the associate director came to see us once. It was supposed to be twice, but then he got COVID. Um, so he just came once. We had a voice coach that came a couple of times. She was magnificent. But other than that, it was just us. It was in a room at the Theatre Royal in Nottingham, me and and this team of people that I'd never met before, which was exciting, I think is a good word to use. <laughs> and did you have to do much to gel your team together or did it just all happen very quickly and naturally because of a shared passion for what you were doing? I think it's a combination of those two things. As I say, they were, and I mean this with love, a disparate group in that they didn't know one another. Mm. And they weren't amateur actors in the way that we had been when we performed. They were 
people just ordinary people and that was what the RSC wanted they didn't want people that had necessarily acting experience so my job was twofold it was to get them ready for the stage and any stage is quite challenging to be on arguably the RSC is one of the biggest theatre companies in the world so to get them ready for that stage in terms of the dramaturgical perspective theatre making perspective but then also understanding that this was such a a big big thing and that we have to be a group of people you can't be individuals when you do something like that it's an ensemble yeah I had a a plan that I think felt risky to them but I was confident (laughs) I was confident uh I think it was about six or seven weeks before I let them have the scripts right and actually I think it was about five or six weeks before they were even given their parts we didn't give them their parts until quite late on so they didn't know what what part they were playing and that was very deliberate on my part because I wanted them to become a community before they had to make any kind of individual choices. Yeah. And I think that was really important. So, yeah, we, we spent weeks really getting to know one another and making themselves vulnerable. For me, that's what theatre is. It's, I can't think of many other activities or professions where you have to do that because when you are on the stage, you are inviting people to watch you and listen to you and ultimately judge you. And you have to be prepared for that. It's hard. It's hard to do because you are, yeah, you're you're inviting criticism almost and you have to be ready for how that feels. Mm. So it was very important that, that it was a safe space where people could make themselves vulnerable, try things out and see what worked before we sort of set off on the actual process of, of line learning and where to stand and how to say things. Yeah. So what were some of the... You give us some of the headlines about how you went about getting them to gel and become that close team where they where they felt safe together. What were some of the things you were doing before you you let them have the have the script? Some of it was a bit research based, so we knew that we were going to be in Henry the Sixth. So some of it was about looking at the world that Henry the Sixth might have inhabited. So aside from the script, but sort of looking at the the fourteen hundreds and and what life might have been like. So yeah, a little bit of research got involved and actually that became quite crucial to us because all sorts of things came out of that that perhaps we wouldn't have discovered during the acting process but really there was a lot of I guess a bit of silliness playing games and that's always fun not everybody's up for it but once you start it becomes something that is actually just you know when it's a a cold rainy or snowy January night and you actually end up playing what amounts to a party game (laughs) Stuff like that can be really, really useful in in creating relationships quite quickly. And then other things like like drama exercises, I guess you might call them. So it's just things where you have to learn to trust somebody. So very simple ones, like almost like, you know, you you might blindfold somebody and then somebody would lead them around the room with just Mm. their voice and make sure they didn't bump into things. And just things like that, again, quite reminiscent of party activities, but they're a means to an end, but also you have quite a lot of fun doing them. So yeah, we did, we did lots of that kind of thing. And then just other acting things that I sort of got from other scripts. So just trying things out so that they wouldn't be afraid to stand and speak words that were not from their own brains, you know, words that other people had written. So things that were far away from Shakespeare, I guess, and just sort of putting words into mouths and kind of removing that 
nervousness that you might have about how how do I say this word what does this line mean and working on those very basic skills and yeah we created an entire world of St Albans it was <laughs> I think I'd be quite disturbed if I went to St Albans now because in my head it looks completely different we've created it in a room in Nottingham somewhere and <laughs> but um yeah we created an entire world of characters with relationships and all sorts of stuff going on which was really nice it was uh, a bit of escapism as well I think yeah so many questions to to ask you, Becky. I'm really interested by you mentioned sort of being vulnerable, getting the them to get to be a little bit vulnerable with each other, and how being on stage is perhaps the the ultimate degree of vulnerability because you're standing there speaking and inviting the world, I guess, to critique you. I mean, that's really fascinating because there's so much getting spoken about in sort of leadership circles and leadership research over the last few years around vulnerability. Um, and I think that's an interesting and in some ways juxtaposition to to being a leader, because whilst I fundamentally believe in authenticity as a leader, there's an element of times as a leader, we have to almost act and put, put on a show to have the impact or get get our message across. So it's a long rambling question, really. But kind of what do you think those of us in leadership positions can maybe learn and adopt from from your world and and the world of acting and theatre I think that's really interesting because I think authenticity does come from vulnerability actually I think people can spot when someone is performing and I think that's different to what you sort of said about acting anytime you stand up in front of a group of people I, I don't know what other people feel like I sometimes have this incredible so like imposter syndrome where I just think I don't know why anybody's about to listen to me but they are that's nearly every guest who comes on the show actually <laughs> says something similar <laughs> yeah and I think that's the kind of acting thing that's the okay like fake it till you make it stuff and I think that's different to performing I think performing is when it's not authentic right acting a part in order to make you able to communicate I think that's a a key skill Mm. because that's still you and that's still coming from you but you're just saying right I've got to be confident I've got to do the eye contact I've got to be clear I've got to make sure that people understand what I'm saying performing isn't necessarily authentic if you're playing a character as, as a leader who's presenting or a leader who is persuading then I'm not sure an audience would like that necessarily I think people can see through that but certainly in terms of acting, that methodology of communication, I think that's perhaps what people could take from the theatre community. And some of it is is a toolkit. It's just, you know, this is like a, a way of, of making sure that your voice can be heard clearly. And mm. I think the eye contact is a big thing. That's huge in, in the theatre. That's a really weird thing. If you've ever stared into somebody's eyes, it's an odd thing to do. And it's like, you know, who looks away first sort of thing. And actually that is an exercise that actors will do because you have to hold the gaze of maybe a thousand people if you're standing on a stage. And sometimes you'll make eye contact with somebody in the audience and you have to be able to ride that. So there are those kind of tools, I think, that could be learned from the acting community in terms of presentational ability. But the question about vulnerability, I think it's hand in hand with authenticity. I think it's a degree of vulnerability is useful. I think it makes people empathetic and I think it allows people to understand that leaders with a capital L perhaps are actually people who have something to share Mm. rather than someone who is standing on the stage and presenting something to you and perhaps that's an important lesson that people might be able to learn. Yeah I found it really interesting Becky listening to you distinguish between acting and and performing there now I think it's fascinating how 
people can interpret words differently. So for, for me, I would have sort of positioned them the other way around almost. So for me, I would have thought almost acting for a leader. I would have thought in my mind as that being the inauthentic part when you are trying to act and be, be a different character that you've from your context and from your industry it's completely the other way which is really interesting and I guess just the purely interesting part of that is that so often people can use exactly the same word to have a completely different meaning yeah absolutely context is everything <laughs> the other thing I'm really interested to ask you about because you just mentioned is you you mentioned eye contact and I forget your exact exact words because I was trying to process the, the next question I wanted to ask you but you said something like a, an actor needs to be able to maintain the gaze of a thousand people or, or or something like that yeah absolutely how on earth do you do that how do actors do that and how can leaders learn learn that skill so when they're given a big presentation they've got everybody transfixed on them and the message I think there are a couple of things that actors do, and it depends very much on a character that one might play. But you are a character and you're also yourself, and you can never really lose sight of that. Any Anybody playing a part is going to play it differently to somebody else, otherwise you might as well just make a cartoon version of it. Right, yeah. So, you know, a character is a combination of the words on the page and the person playing that character. So it's very much dependent on on a number of factors, I think, but... I think the important thing is you can't fade into the background at any point, even if you are a character that is supposed to fade into the background, because if you're on the stage, you're there for a reason. So I think most actors will enter the stage with it being their space. It's their space and the people that are there are invited to share it. And it's almost as though you want to make every person there think that the performance is solely for them. Mm. It's, it's an individual performance and it's just for you. It is such a shared experience. I read something, I can't remember where I read this from, I don't have any citations for it, but I thought it was great. It says the the performance is what happens in the air between an actor and an audience. Mm. And I just think, actually, that's interesting, isn't it? Because whatever you put out there is, is there for people to see and take. It's up to them how they interpret it. All you can do is provide it. But the eye contact thing is important. When you're on a stage, it depends on the stage, of course, but when you're on a stage, you often don't see the audience. It's dark and you're in the bright lights. But very often you see some of them. If you do happen to catch somebody's eye, you just have to ride that. You can't turn away. You can't pretend it didn't happen even. And it's a skill that I think once you've learned, you take it into whatever it is you do. But eye contact's vital because that's how people know you're talking to them. And if you're in a room, I mean, I'm sort of thinking about my role as a teacher now, really. When I do assemblies and I've got 100, 200 students in front of me, I really try very hard to kind of, and I think this might be my theatre training, to take in every row. You know, I don't just talk to a few students that are sitting in front of me. I look around the whole room and I try very hard to make sure that I direct at least some of it to everybody. Because otherwise, why would they listen to me if I'm not giving them my performance, you know, I'm not I'm not putting myself into the air in front of me. Why would they care about taking that? And I think that's really important in any presentational yeah. place, I guess. And going like super, super granular here, when you're giving those assemblies, is that literally about sort of breaking the audience up into chunks and in each chunk trying to find one or two individuals or, or children where you can look directly in their eyes and try and get eye contact with individual people and therefore that group or that segment thinks you're looking at them is is that the granularity of it 
I think so. And I think it's slightly different when you're in a, a position like I am. Because I, as I say, I work in a sixth form and I know all of the students. So I know who will be comfortable with that and who won't. So sometimes it is about selecting the ones that you know can, can handle that. Um, there are some students that would wither and die if they thought that you were going to get them out the front. Looking at them. <laughs> yeah. But then there are others that enjoy a bit of banter. And I suppose it's that kind of... And I think even if you don't know the audience that you've got, you can assess it quite well. It's just about reading the room, isn't it? But I think you're right. Yeah, I think it is about sort of directing things in a certain way and dropping them where it where it looks like it might have the most impact. I love what you said, though, about in the theatre, the actors think of the stage as their space and really owning it and then imagine every single person in the audience as a as an in, individual that I'd like then it really resonates actually with sort of one of my beliefs around leadership so regular listeners to the show will have heard me say countless times they're probably bored of me saying saying this but every single person we lead is an individual and they're the most important person in the world to, to somebody else so actually when a leader is trying to give a big presentation and engaging everybody actually that same mindset guiding principle linked to what you shared is every single person is an individual here and i'm not communicating to a group right? i'm trying to get my message across to 150 individuals in front of me i think that just shifts everything really doesn't it in terms of kind of what you say, how you move, your inner mindset as you're giving that presentation. It's it's really powerful. I think so. And actually, my husband is a radio presenter. And he always quotes Terry Wogan. Right. Who always used to sort of, on, on his Radio 2 show, he used to say, dear listener, um, and not pluralise it. And my husband said he learned such a lot from that. Actually, you're talking to one person. And that might be a woman washing the pots or it might be a man who's reading a book or it might be a child getting ready for school but they're your listener and actually mm. everything is aimed at them and not just some homogenous mass of people that may or may not be tuning in and I find that really interesting because yeah it's about giving and everybody's going to have a different experience on they even in a shared space everybody's going to take away something slightly different from it it's going to be unique to them and that's your job I think if you're presenting yeah that's that's super cool I just wrote down dear dear listener so people listening to the show might hear uh, might hear a difference in the next episode that, that goes out because <laughs> <laughs> that's really interesting like what have I done I think I've recorded 106 episodes now going slightly off tangent but I still wrestle with when I go back and record the the introduction I'm still never sure exactly how best to introduce this podcast and, and what to say so thank thank you by your husband by your husband and Terry Wogan I think I might have just cracked yeah. just cracked it <laughs> Becky just a few more questions before we start wrapping up really when we spoke previously to to plan today's conversation um one of the things I think you said was that you don't consider yourself to to be a leader so that being the context like what does leadership mean to you I think I said leadership with a capital L earlier on, and I think I stand by that. I think there are, leadership with a capital L is almost like it, it's a, an occupation. People who do it a lot and they are, you know, it's a job title, isn't it? Yeah. You know, a senior leader or whatever. And then there's leadership with a small L, which is something that you do. Maybe it's the difference between a noun and a verb. I don't know. So I wouldn't cast myself as a leader with a capital L. But I guess leadership, it certainly comes with education. You know, if you're in a classroom, or actually not just in a classroom, just around groups of young people, you obviously are the person that has to make decisions. Mm. And sometimes they're snap decisions and sometimes they're planned. But 
you constantly have to be switched on. And I think anybody that works in education probably has that pressure, I suppose, but also responsibility. But I think for me, it comes from the theatre. I think absolutely, particularly when I'm directing, I think my responsibility is there are a few things going on. And I feel like I've, I've just about got there now in terms of my practice. I think as a director, you have to create a piece of theatre. It has to be good enough for people to pay for and to mm-hmm. want to see and has all the lights and sounds and costumes and all the rest of it. And you have to make sure that people are prepared and able to deliver that. But actually, particularly with community theatre, which is really where I've, I've done my groundwork and, and still very much love, this is about people having an experience. There'll be lawyers and doctors and teachers and people who run pubs and who have full-time jobs who come along to do a bit of theatre in the evening. And you have to shake all of that off. And, you know, people come in and they might be worried about a presentation they're doing tomorrow or a phone call they have to make or maybe their son's had a detention or all sorts of different things that have happened. Mm. And you have to sort of go, well, they're here because they want to be. and we need to make this a special part of their life really because what we want is to get the best out of them mm. you know we don't want to put on a play where people aren't very good and actually it's not about ability it's about enabling them mm. and about making them feel part of something so as a community theatre director very much I feel like the leadership element is reading the room is understanding what different people need how to speak to them understanding that nobody's turned up that night with a plan to not remember their lines but perhaps something's happened that's made that they meant that they can't so it's that balancing act I think perhaps the multitasking element is perhaps what makes me someone that can lead Mm. because I think I'm able to assess what's going on and sort of go right this is what this person needs tonight we've got an end product and we have to hit that absolutely but it's the journey of how we get there that matters and making everybody feel like they're part of something and not just telling them where to stand and how to say something and and cross your fingers it's actually about saying no this is a shared experience and we need to make sure that actually the process is as important as the products and you're also going to get a much better performance out of people if they've had a good time with it I think Mm. so yeah I think it's I think it's differentiation I think that's what it is for me understanding or trying to understand what different people's needs are and finding a way to deliver to them something that means that they can achieve what they want to achieve I've just had this real almost moment of clarity where I think I've just got a tiny tiny little nugget of why Becky Valentine probably got so much from her experience in the theatre that she could transfer back to to work as a leader there's I hadn't made this link and understood this before listening to what you just said I think there's such a strong parallel between leading a business and being a director in a in a theatre especially when you said you've, you've got a show to put on right so you've got a very hard finite deliverable on a certain date that has got to be delivered it's got to be delivered to a certain standard because people are going to come and pay to see it and expect a certain standard but how do you deliver that product or that show you deliver it through other people, right? You deliver through others, which is what I talk about all the time with leaders. The more senior we get, it's less about what we can do ourselves, more about delivering through others. So then how do you engage and support and get get the best out of people? And the very word director, probably in the business sense, maybe some people would now 
associate that with negative connotations in terms of very directive leadership style. So for you, I guess there's this real balance between, yes, you need to be sometimes directive to share your experience and expertise, but equally you've got to coach and nurture and understand the the, the people so you can get, get the best out of them. It's, it's like such a strong parallel. I also think it's important that when you are leading someone or some a set of someone's, that you have that understanding of what they're going through. So for me, yeah. sort of doing years as an actor has meant I understand what it's like to be in the rehearsal room. And I've had awful directors that have made me cry, you know, and and I've had amazing directors that I've taken, I've stolen parts of their personality from them because it's worked so beautifully. And I mentioned earlier about making yourself vulnerable on stage. And I think that as a director, you make yourself vulnerable in the rehearsal room. I share things with the people that I work with to sort of demonstrate that actually, you know, I, I've got some a bit more experience now and I, I know how to run things. But there definitely was a time when I didn't know that. And I, I carry it with me. I think it's important that you still have those vulnerabilities. And there are still moments where where you let those out, I think. It's a different context. I don't know if how relevant this will be to, to your world, but do you ever find that the experience you've got from acting yourself sometimes creates a, sort of a, a watch out for you when you're, when you're directing? And what I mean by that is probably the, the business example would be if you've got a leader or manager who five years ago was doing the job of somebody who now works for them or reports into them sometimes it can easy be very easy to sort of delegate a task but in doing it you tell them exactly how to do that task because you know how you did it how you how you would have done it does are you still you're mindful of that when you're operating as a director now or, or is the context different no I'm very mindful of that I think that's a really strong parallel um I'm actually directing the school show at the moment so lots of children singing and some of them are really young, never set a foot on the stage before. And I have to tell myself not to because I I'll, I don't often get up on the stage with them. I, I like that to be their space. But sometimes you just have to to move yeah. something or whatever. And honestly, the temptation to stand there and just say, look, move from there to here and do it like this. Because they've spent the last 15 minutes not doing it like anything like you'd like them to. That temptation is huge. And I, I never do it. I never do but it's always about to be there. It's almost like, look, move over. I'll do it. I know the lines, you know, look. <laughs> and of course it's not about that, but that, yeah, I think that's, um, I'm very, very mindful of that because I've seen other directors do it and it frustrates me when they do it. So, but it isn't something that's natural to me. I think the natural thing would be for me to stand up and say, yeah. do it like this. This is the accent you need to use. Look, this is how you move. <laughs> and you can't, can you? Because it's, I think a better word than director mm. is enabler. I think I prefer to say that I like to enable people to get to where they need to be nice. so that it's their choice, not mine. Yeah, I, I'm just guiding them. Yeah. Otherwise, I might as well just do it myself and there's no point in that. Yeah. I, my head is just firing off in all sorts of different directions. As, as, as <laughs> here. I just want to recap, reiterate whatever the right word is, what you said there about as well when you're directing the, the school play and the stage being their space and you try not to go on there. Again, I think that is a super powerful analogy for, for business, right? If in the presentation space, for example, right? So if we have got someone in our team to give a presentation for us to a customer, to kind of our, our bosses, and we happen to be sitting in that as well. And I've probably done this loads. I see it happen all the time. 
at the end at one point, the boss in inverted commas might stand up as well on the stage or at the front of the room to add something in. And in some ways that's quite disempowering, isn't it? Because you've stood up into their their space. Like if you really do have to stand up and add something, even just being mindful to stand up and add your point from the side or the audience. So you really give that individual their moment on the stage and let them them own it. I was like, I'd never really thought about that in before in terms of business, but incredible. I've seen conductors do it, which I think and I think that's been really powerful for me when a conductor has conducted an orchestra and then the orchestra stand for the bow and I've seen the conductor step down from the podium or whatever it is they're standing on and just step back and sort of say, no, this this isn't about me anymore. This is about them. And I think that's what leaders should do, really. Certainly directors in a theatre shouldn't be on the stage at the end. Yeah. You know, that's not about them. Yeah, it's fine. Just have your name in the programme. That'll do. Yeah. Oh, I love it. It's been such a fabulous conversation. Becky, I'm, I'm conscious of time, so let me finish up with a couple of the, the quick-fire questions I always love to ask guests as we, as we wrap up. So the first one, other than your smartphone, what would you say is one item, if it were lost, broken or stolen, that you would immediately go out and replace? It would be my piano. I couldn't live without my piano. I think a guest has said the piano before, I think. So that's, a, that's our first double up. <laughs> okay, oh, it's a big de-stressor. Yeah, brilliant. And what would you say is one book that's had a really significant impact upon you or a book that you find yourself frequently recommending or gifting to other people? Okay, so the one that comes to first into my mind, but this isn't my answer, I'm just going to tell you that it came into my head and I'm moving it away from my head, okay. is The Complete Works of Shakespeare, <laughs> for obvious reasons. But I'm not going to have that one. I just wanted to acknowledge Shakespeare. Actually, yeah, this is the book. It's called um, A Good Night Out. And it's by a man called John McGrath. And it's about popular theatre audience, audiences, different audiences, and kind of reaching out to different people, to different demographics. And there was always, there was something in there that resonated with very young. I was very young. I was in, it was the early 90s when I read it first. I still dip into it. In fact, it's in front of me. Um, and there was something in it that when he talked about theatre and he said, you're creating your show and you're you're in this world and you, you've got something, a product to give, and that's everything. When you're on show day, it's just everything. It consumes you. But the people that are coming to see it have got actual real lives. And, you know, they might have had an awful day. They might have had to stand waiting for a bus and been splashed by a puddle. Or, you know, they might have broken a heel on the shoe or all sorts of different things that happen. And then sometimes they might just turn oh, I've got this thing and I've paid for the ticket so I'll go but they're not necessarily looking forward to it or whatever and you've got a thousand people in the audience you're going to have a few of those and it's not their job to work hard to take away what you want to give them it's your job to create the world that you want them to inhabit for however long you've got them for and I just thought you're absolutely right we have to do everything that we can to make the event, the activity, whatever it is, and I think this doesn't just apply to theatre. The, the the analogy is theatre, but I think it, I think it broadens. Whatever it is you're presenting, it's your responsibility to make sure that you've not just thought about what you want to give. It's about what you would like people to experience, and it's it's your job to make that comfortable. Whether that's I've performed in churches before with hard pews, and we just like went to IKEA and bought a load of cushions, you know, because it's like. That's not going to be much fun for yeah. people tonight. Let's give them something soft to sit on. 
it, whether it's something like that that's just like a, a tool and something practical or whether it's like it's cold let's give them free hot chocolate or whatever mm. it is you know it's your responsibility to sort of look at the bigger picture and provide something with them and that's what I got from that book and like I say I think it can broaden out it doesn't have to just be about theatre but um yeah it's about understanding that we all have different needs and if you want to present something if you want somebody to take something away then you're responsible for all of that not them they just have to turn up <laughs> love that and I've loved our conversation I think what it's really shown to me is this piece that often gets spoken about particularly when we're talking about innovation where some of the greatest innovators as individuals or, or companies are very good at connecting completely different ideas or they're good at exploring completely different sectors to see what ideas you can learn and which bits can kind of help you in 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 your world and just as I said my, my brain's just been constantly firing kind of listening to you talk because it's a it's a world I don't inhabit I know very little about and I've I've had so many sort of aha moments listening to you to you talk it's been it's been fascinating and I was going to say I I hope I probably don't need to I don't need to hope because I'm sure it'll be exactly the same for guests they'll take so much from this conversation so thank you so much for your time I know you've had a busy day at school teaching so really appreciate you making the time to record this so thank you no it's been great thank you and it's it's nice to be able to talk about the thing that I love if it is useful in any way to anybody then that's just a bonus I think <laughs> There you have it, folks. That was episode 108, and I told you it was an absolute cracker, and I really hope that you agree having listened to it. There were just so many light bulb moments in there for me, so many associations and links I could make between different ideas and different domains that are very relevant to us as leaders. You might also have noticed my own light bulb moment or idea I stole and how I changed the beginning of this episode by addressing you as a dear listener, as an individual and trying to talk to you more directly. If you're enjoying the show, folks, then please do take just a couple of minutes to rate, review and subscribe wherever you're listening. I say it every week, but it really does make a big difference. Other than that, that is it for this episode. I look forward to talking to you again very soon. And until then, and as always, lead on. Thank you.